Well, today we're continuing our series called A Faithful Presence. And in our Faithful Presence series, this is about how to become a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. And one of the big things that we looked at in those scriptures, what we saw in those scriptures, is that process is more important than content. Like the best way we can learn to help people is to enter into the emotional process with them. What we say to people, sometimes our theology, sometimes the way we push our agenda in a conversation actually isn't the thing that they need. Sometimes people need us to enter in and understand and empathize. And one of the most helpful people that I've read is a guy named Terry Wardle that helps us understand how we can enter into the emotional process by understanding something called the structures of inner healing. And the structures of inner healing show us uh, something that intersects with the verses that we read today. And so I'm going to share the structures of inner healing, and I want to do my best to do clearly and concisely. So if you could follow along, you can take notes. Um, You don't have this on your thing. But what is the structures of inner healing? The structures of inner healing begin with life situations. In a life situation... Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, I just did something I'm not proud of? Uh, Maybe you uh, went out with your friends, had a good time, and then the next morning you look at the text messages that you sent to other people. Oh no, that's a situation. (laughs) Uh, Maybe on a more serious note, maybe you think of the other day when you got really angry and you raged out against someone, maybe a loved one or someone at work. Uh, Maybe... You remember a few months ago when you tried to be the center of attention in a meeting or at a party and that didn't go well for you. Uh, Maybe you were in a meeting and you refused to receive criticism and that created this tension between you and the other people on your team. Um, Maybe we've abused someone verbally or physically and we found ourselves and we go, man, that that is what a life situation is. Something that we do or say that we're not proud of. Now, generally speaking, life situations can be anything from rage to uncontrollable fear, relational isolation, maybe even desire to run away, thoughts of suicide, abusive behavior. And these things happen for everyone. Now, the issue with life situations is that they're usually connected to something beneath the surface. That would be dysfunctional behaviors, dysfunctional behavior. Now, dysfunctional behavior are the responses and the patterns of behavior that run contrary to all that God has for us. So behind every life situation where we're not proud, there's probably, in many, sometimes there's just one-offs, but sometimes there's patterns of behavior that we have. There's addictive behaviors that help us to cope with something that's going even deeper below the surface. So uh, these, there's things that we do to hide or mask the pain. Some people are very productive. They have a lot of performance issues, or they're workaholics, or they're perfectionists. They need everything to be right. Some people are addicted to approval. Other people are addicted to attention. Some people, the way they have, the, way, the reason they end up in the life situations they have is because they actually have a chronic problem-solving, rescuing complex, where they have to solve problems for people. And these can go into some of the darker ones where we talk about alcohol abuse or chemical abuse, and even eating disorders, and and even shopping disorders or kleptomania. There's still So basically, when you have the life situation, there's something you're not proud of. Generally speaking, there can be patterns of behavior that lead to those life situations. 
You do the same thing over and over again, and the result is, I did something I'm not proud of. Now, most, most, most Christian advice and most churches and a lot of your friends and my friends only try to address these top two things. If you think about it, if you go to a friend and they go, hey, you did the thing with the other day and it was really hurtful and you did the thing, don't do that anymore. That's them saying, don't do that life situation. Hey, you have a pattern, you've been drinking too much, or hey, you have this pattern of being very defensive, you don't take criticism well, you need to stop that. Most advice from friends and most advice that we get on the internet uh, deals with these top two things, which is something called behavior modification. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Most of the time, our problems, people come to us and they go, stop it. Just stop it. Just don't do that. And I see that you have a pattern. Like, you need to do something to stop that dysfunctional behavior, that pattern, because it's resulting in these certain situations that you're not proud of. So that's where everyone else is. But what if there were other things below the surface? Which leads us to the third thing, which is below dysfunctional behavior is something called emotional upheaval. Emotional upheaval. Now, the reason that we have dysfunctional behavior is because we have emotions and we have feelings inside of us that are crippling us. And in some situations, people can't help the way that they feel inside. And all the emotions that they're feeling are a response to something that's happening deeper inside. And we respond to these emotions by developing coping mechanisms, which are patterns of behavior that help us to hide and mask what's really going on. So you feel sad. You feel hurt. You feel like worthless inside. You can't walk in around in societies thinking I'm sad and I'm hurt and I'm worthless. You can't do it. You have to do something with that. What do people do? They stuff it in. In order to cope with it, they develop patterns of behavior to overcome how they're feeling so they don't feel bad. Are you with me? Does this all make sense? So this is why, so emotions are in something deeper going on inside. It results in, hey, I'm going to create a performance thing or I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be a perfectionist. And the result is when people don't meet your expectations, you might lash out at them. So let's see how all three are connected. That would be an example. Now, not that you lash out at people, but that's an example. So emotional upheaval. There's something going on below the surface. Our emotions are making us aware of something. And our emotions tell us and act as a response to something. It's kind of like the heart's alarm system. And so when we stuff it down, that energy and that pain needs to go somewhere. And so it results in behaviors that can be unhelpful for us. This leads us, but there's still something else below the surface that Wardle talks about on below emotional upheaval, and that is lies and distortions. Now, in many situations, the reason we're feeling emotions, the reason we're having a negative emotional upheaval is because there are lies and distortions that perhaps we have believed. There are certain things that can come into our minds that can lead us to believe lies or distortions of the truth. We can come to the conclusion that we think that we're worthless. We can believe that we're bad and that we'll never be good. We can think that we're stupid. We can think that nobody loves us or cares about us. We can think that we're ugly, that people don't like us, that we're damaged goods, that our parents hate us, that God hates us. It could be anything. And why do we have these negative emotions? We have these because we've started to believe things that might not be true about us. How many people do you know, don't raise your hand, but how many people do you know 
They look at their life and you can just tell that they believe things about themselves that just aren't true. And no matter what you say to them, you go, that's not true. That's not true about you. That's not how I experience you. But they feel it and they believe it and they need to do something with those emotions. And then you look at it, you can almost see the dysfunctional behavior in their life as a result of what they believe about themselves. I see some head nods. Does that make sense? Now, there is, now there is one level further down. And many times, the reason we believe lies and distortions, which results in emotional people, which result in dysfunctional behavior, which creates life situations that we're not proud of, is below, below the lies and distortions is something called wounds. Wounds. And wounds are the source of a lot of the pain we experience in life. What is a wound? A wound was, is something that was done to us, or is actually done by us. And usually it happens in our first formation. Maybe you had a parent who was never there. And you started to believe that you don't matter. Or maybe you were told that you were worthless by a teacher. And you actually started to believe that you're worthless. Maybe you experienced a parent or a loved one just say like the worst thing to you. Maybe you were abused. You could have been abused physically or sexually or just abused by like emotionally absent behaviors from someone that you loved or thought you loved or thought you knew. Wounds can happen when the person you trust the most breaks that trust. Now, most family systems theorists and therapists uh, can get you to this level. They can help you understand how your life situations may be connected to the things that have happened to you or to others. They can get you that far down. But the difference at this point, the difference at this point is that when we look at the scriptures and we see what Jesus does, Jesus also sees these layers. He sees how we act and how that might be connected to things that have happened to us. And what we have is this fun little interplay with Jesus that he doesn't excuse us for our behavior, but he does acknowledge that there are things that happen to us and even by us that are affecting how we live out our lives that can negatively impact us. Now, normally at this time, in my talk, what I would do is I would uh, read a bunch of scripture, but thank God we had Kyra to do it. And... You know, the topic today is process is greater than content. And uh, so what I want to do is uh, show you a clip of the same verses that, uh, that, that Kyra read. And it's done, um, it's done uh, by this show. It's a, what is the name of the show? It's called, uh, it's called The Chosen. And it demonstrates kind of it brings to life what was actually probably happening. And what I want you to look for is, I, I, want, you to, I want you to enjoy the cinematic quality of it all, yes, for sure. But what I want you to look for is how Jesus moves towards this woman in relationship, in emotional relationship, and how maybe where you can see some of these things present. So why don't you go ahead and start the clip and I'll help you out. So let's watch that. Give me a dick. Take your head. That's bad, huh? What? You, but you. I've got a drink for me and serenity. I'm a woman. I'm 
sorry. I should have said please. And it's not safe for you to be alone out here? Nor are you. Why haven't you gone with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come and live. And the heat is even so kind in my skin. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd still like a drink of water if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Aren't you defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Would. Except that you have nothing to throw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Long story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water. That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I gave him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband and then come back. I will show you both. I didn't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. Ha, <laughs> well, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it. In spirit and truth. Heart and mind. That, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes, it explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me. 
They don't trust in anyone. You're wrong. When you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of. I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage. And even the practice of your faith. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him. Because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? <laughs> I'm rejected by others. Interesting, right? It's interesting because Jesus has all the content. He's like the son of God. Like he understands theology. In a lot of ways, he was trained to know the scriptures. And, but we see here that Jesus has a way of understanding the emotional process of people. And you can almost see the structures of inner healing in the story. And what Jesus did in that moment is he entered into the pain of the woman who was suffering. And notice that he skips the debate. He refuses to be drawn into the debates that she is putting in front of him. Where to worship, Jacob and the well, and the history of the well. He won't debate her. He mentions her five husbands, and the man that she's living with now is not even her husband, but it wasn't a condemnation. 
He doesn't tell her to stop doing that. He doesn't focus on her behavior modification. And in this conversation, somewhere between when the disciples left and when the disciples returned, Jesus and this woman had a lengthy conversation. And somewhere in that moment, Jesus brought healing to this woman. Jesus brought emotional healing to the things that she was experiencing. And he offered healing to the deepest part of her soul. He actually addresses the rejection by men. She, he actually digs into her self-worth and her beliefs about herself. And he speaks new life over her through the power of God. And he brings healing and he restores her. And then you can see it in that clip that suddenly the light bulb goes off for her. And she gets it. All of a sudden, she feels like her life was touched by God. And from that moment forward, her life was changed. Not because Jesus won a theological debate with her. Not because he demanded that she modify her behavior. Her life was changed. Her choices changed. Her behavior changed because God had healed her. Also, as a bonus, the whole town came out to see him after this, and he ended up staying in the region for like three days, and he just did ministry for people. And the whole town, what's amazing about his time there is that we don't actually have any evidence that he performed any miracles. They just believed him based on the testimony of the woman. They were like, well, if you could help her, you must be the Christ. What happened to that woman? Well, the second half of the healing model looks like this. When Jesus comes and touches us and brings healing to our pain from our past or the things that we've experienced that only he can bring healing for, he replaces those lies with truth and acceptance. So instead of believing the lies, you believe the truth about yourself and you accept yourself as God made you to be. You see yourself in light of how God sees you, not your own distorted view of yourself. Instead of emotional upheaval, those bad emotions, there's something called comfort and peace, where we're not experiencing emotional anxiety that lives below the surface. We're living with contentment and peace and the comfort that can only come from building our life on the truth and acceptance that is given to us by God. And so instead of dysfunctional behavior, there's empowered living. And empowered living leads to life situations. If we want to address issues in our life, why we do the things we do, the patterns of dysfunctional behavior that might exist, we need to get to the core of the things that may have, we have, may have experienced. And what we see from the life of Jesus in this woman and with this woman is that when we allow Jesus to bring healing to our hearts and we open ourselves up, we say, God, this is where it hurts. God can restore us and bring healing to the deepest parts of us. Now, I believe that you are here today for a reason, and some of you here today are experiencing emotional upheaval. You have anxiety in your life that's deeper than just like, where am I going to go to lunch? There's a deeper anxiety, and there's some emotional upheaval that you're experiencing, and I want to suggest that some of you here today are just trying to put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound, and you don't have to do that anymore because Jesus is come, and Jesus is here today to heal you. Jesus not only heals us from our physical ailments, he heals our hearts. He brings comfort and peace and healing to the things we've experienced in our past.
And so to be a faithful presence in our city, the whole sermon series is called A Faithful Presence. The way we begin to be a faithful presence is that God needs to bring a healing touch to you. God needs to bring a healing touch to the people around you. And it means that if you actually want to have an impact in your city, in your work, in your family, in your neighborhood, it, needs, it means that you and I must learn to do as Jesus did. And look at how Jesus moved towards the woman at the well. That's the way we need to start to move toward people. The big key here is that Jesus is one person working with one person. And the result is that working with that one person had a massive impact on the whole town. And sometimes I think we think we need to think on a structural level. We go, here's society's problems, and here's how I would adjust it and work on it on a societal level, on a structural level. But I don't know if that's helpful. Because when I look at these verses and I watch this video, I see that Jesus looks and thinks and acts small. That Jesus was willing to enter into a relationship with one person and do the difficult work of working with that one person and doing the difficult work of working with that one person who's in front of you, that's actually how you might transform a city. The whole city got changed because Jesus did ministry. He emotionally entered into the process with one person, with one woman. Now reflect with me for a minute. Do you think that Jesus could have got all that done had he just got into a political debate with the woman? Do you think that he would have been effective and successful? Do you think he would have made a difference if he worked really hard in that conversation to show how his Jewish point of view was superior to her Samaritan point of view? Like if he won the religious debate? Let me ask you another question. What chance do you think you have to make a difference in somebody's life if all you're doing is arguing with them? Or what chance do you have to make a difference in someone else's life out there if all we're doing is posting our point of view on social, but we refuse to engage with someone on an emotional and personal level? Like, what good is your content actually going to do for somebody? Let me ask it a different way. You're trying to convince somebody to do the right thing, and you know that they're doing something that's harmful for their life. They just don't agree with you, and I'm sure the, you're the greatest debater of all time. But if Jesus chose process over content when working with the woman in the well, what chance do you actually have to move someone to do the right thing with your life if you're not willing to engage with them on an emotional level? I don't think you have much of a chance, and neither do I. And here's what we can learn from this. You need to attend to the emotional processes in your life. And you need to attune to the emotional processes happening in the lives of the people around you. For example, if you want to make a difference in the life of someone who struggles whether or not they will be accepted by a Christian community, by a church, maybe it's because of their personal lifestyles or their choices in life, and whether or not they're going to be accepted, or you're going to experience radical acceptance even though they don't look like everybody else and talk like everybody else, and maybe it's because of their race or their gender or their sexuality. 
your best secular arguments and your best theological arguments aren't going to help them. They might help a little bit, but the truth is you are going to have to find a way to enter into the emotional process to really help someone understand that they are loved and accepted. This is what Jesus does with the woman at the well. He has all the knowledge and all the power, and he doesn't use it. He's paying attention to what God's doing in this woman's heart. And that is your call as a Christian. As Christians, if all we are doing is creating banner statements on our Instagram profile, if we're just amplifying our own freedom of speech, or even if we are willing to meet with someone to drop all of our best knowledge on them, when we do that, all we are doing is we're making it about us. We're not making it about them. It's all inferior to entering into the emotional process with someone. And second, there's a second thing we can learn to do in this. I want you to hear this. We need to learn what's going on below the surface to be able to pay attention to what's going on above. You and I need to grow and continue to grow and develop the skill of paying attention to what's really going on with somebody. And the best way that you can begin to do this is to do as Jesus did. Jesus spent lots of time alone listening to God's voice through the Holy Spirit, through prayer, for other people. I know that many of you pray for yourselves. I'm listening to God for myself. I do it every day. But did you know, if you were to make time to listen for people specifically that are not you, you would be surprised how much God will speak to you about other people. Why do we know this? The example of Jesus and the example of his disciples. As you take time to listen on behalf of others, God may reveal information that is useful for them coming closer to Christ and experiencing the healing that can come from Christ. By the way, I've never seen somebody get special knowledge for somebody else that they could use for their own benefit. You cannot manipulate God to give you information so that you can get ahead in your career or the people that you love or the things that you want in life. God is very smart and he can see everything that we're thinking and feeling and he knows our intentions even better than we do. And so when we come to him and we have a pure heart, as pure as we can, we say, God, what do you want me to hear for this person? When we do that, God many times reveals to us information, just as Jesus revealed, was revealed information about this woman. And the second thing we can do here in, in, in the second part, second layers of point A and point B, um, is we need to learn to ask people better questions. We need to dig in. Because what I've discovered, and what you know to be also true, is that when someone starts talking and there's an issue, Many times, the thing that they start with isn't the thing that they're actually interested in. They're talking about water. Now we're talking about husband number five. Do you see that? Do you see that where we start sometimes isn't where we end up? And this is really important because sometimes people will throw content into our lives and into our face, and they're saying something and they're directing uh, uh, something towards us, but really, is the thing the thing or is there something else going on? And what we want to do is we want to combine listening to God's voice, hearing what God has to say, along with paying attention to what's really going on below the surface. 
And we, ask, we do that by asking better questions. Let me give you an example. Uh, a few years back, I was on a retreat, like a staff retreat at a church, because that's what church people do. They go on retreats, hear from God. And I was on one, and there was another pastor, and his wife were there. And we're all, like, young-ish. We're all, like, in our 20s. And um, we're going around, and we're all sharing, like, 10 minutes each. I mean, it was a full day of retreat. And uh, we're talking, and, and we get to the wife. There's about 10 of us, but we get to the wife, and she's really struggling with the fact that her and her husband have been trying to have kids. And it was, like, really painful and they're like, I'm just trying to trust God, and I really want to have kids. And, you know, there's some emotion happening, and, the, you know, the husband's like, you know, you know, doing the thing where they're rubbing the back, and it's like they're trying to do it. And everyone's like, well, we'll pray, and we'll do this and that. And, like, um, for some reason, um, I don't know why I was the one that felt like I got the word, but I had this distinct impression to ask her a different set of questions. And so, and so when we're going around, we're all asking questions to kind of help her through what she's experiencing. And I just said to her, um, how will you feel about God if you never have kids? And like, I could say maybe it was one to two seconds before she just started weeping. And the reason she was weeping is because God was actually trying to do business with her in terms of trusting, her, trusting him and working with him. And what if... She didn't get the thing that she thought she wanted. Would that be a competing love for her and God? And obviously, I don't know why those words meant so much to her. I'm just a guy, just talking. But I asked it, and she began to work through it, and she began to kind of wrestle with where her true, like, her identity was and, like, the pain and, like, kind of the, um, the anxiety around it. And so she was able, in that moment, to give it to God and to land in a better place with God as a result. And I'm happy to say they have four children. And so, like, who knew? Who knew what that was? But sometimes the thing that we start with isn't the thing we end up with. Hey, give me some water. Hey, you're healed. Let's go share this with the town. And I don't know how many people in your life who talk to you about whatever weird things they're talking about through the day, who knows what God may want to do with us. Pay attention to the process. Seek the healing touch of God in your own life and then seek it for others. Way to be a faithful presence is by being present with the individual who's right in front of you. Let's worship one more time together. Why don't we all stand? And as we're, um, as we're um, getting up to worship, I think we can... I mean, I, I pretty much know everybody here, uh, and you do too. Here's what I'd like to do. As I was walking through the structures of inner healing, um, I felt that there's some of you that may want to do business with God for something that you've experienced from the past, and I would love the chance to have someone pray for you, or I could pray for you. And you're really wrestling with that moment of where, like, you were hurt. There's a sense of wounding that happened. I would say, don't leave here without inviting God to bring healing into that part of your life. And then the second group, I believe that there's some of you who want to be empowered to do the process thing over content thing with the people in your life. That you want God to give you supernatural power to be able to help people who are in need. And I'd love to pray with you to empower you to do that. So over the course of the next song, 
Um, you know, I think some of us, before we can offer healing to others, we need to experience healing for ourselves. So if that's you, I want to have someone pray with you or I can pray with you. So let's worship together. And if that's you, either of those groups, let's, let's meet in the front and let's pray with each other.